2 Samuel chapter 24. Um, we're concluding our study in the life of David today. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it is found on page 326, 2 Samuel chapter 24. Before I read it, I'll just remind you we're picking up. I'm going to pick up on verse 17. We're picking up in the middle of the story. You remind, uh, remember uh, Pastor Heron last week told us that David uh, took a census and he didn't do it in the correct manner. And he was sinful before the Lord. And because of that, God gave him a choice of three different um, consequences for his misdeed. Uh, and he chose the three days of pestilence. You'll remember that. This occurs after that event. The other thing I want to remind you is that God tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 um, that in the past God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his son whom he loves. Whenever God's word is read, he's speaking to us. While I'll read God's words, these are not mine. These are God's words spoken to you. Listen to him as uh, I read. And before I read, please allow me to pray. Almighty God and loving Father, your word tells us that you speak to us. We ask you that as I read this text, please don't let us silence your voice through our inattention. Please don't let me silence your voice in my preaching. Bless the reading of your word. Inform and form us into a fruitful, fruitful community of faith through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I invite you to follow along as I read. It said this in the early service. Um, there's a name that appears there several times. I'm applying my own pronunciation of that name. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Get up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take an offer, take an offer of what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. 
But the king said to Arana, No, but I will, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to, to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. As we conclude the sermon series in uh, the life of David today, I'm tempted to say since this is the last sermon and this is the end of the book, that this is a good conclusion. But as we read this text, this, this reveals more of a beginning than an end. I've titled this sermon, the, the House That God Built. As we read this text, we're going to discover that God begins a process through David that builds the house, which we will uh, come to know as the temple, Solomon's temple. He begins that process in this event. We'll also know that it's God who made the initiation. And even through this process, we're going to see a glimpse of um, the attitude of God toward giving mercy. You'll remember that David wanted to build God a house. Remember in first, Second Samuel chapter 7, David determined he was living in a house of cedar, and he said, why am I dwelling in a house of cedar when the Lord's tabernacle dwells in a tent? He wanted to build a house for God. And you remember what God said through Nathan the prophet. He said to David, he said, I don't want you to build me a house. If I wanted you to build me a house, I would have said something to the prophets. Uh, I want to dwell with my people. No, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And we affectionately call this the divinic covenant. And God promises to make a house for David and give him a name that lasts forever and that his, th excuse me, his throne would last forever. And we know that According to Matthew, the person who would occupy the throne of uh, David is the Lord Jesus Christ, because Matthew in his first gospel offered Jesus' lineage, and he proves that Jesus came from the line of David. And I love the way that Luke writes. Listen to what he said about Christ. This is found in Luke chapter 1. This is talking about the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 1, 32 to 33 says, talking about Christ, he says, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And I can't help, every time I read that, I go, hallelujah, because God... God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And God kept his promise. He built David a house. But our text tells us that God was going to build his own house. He didn't forget David's desire. He said, instead, I'm going to make a house for myself. Now, in order to understand this, I think, 
uh, it's important for us to start at our beginning. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, you remember Adam and Eve sinned. And they separated themselves from God. And one of the things that we see immediately after their sin is God's statement that he would provide a redeemer. Uh, Genesis 3.15, we call that the proto-evangelium, the first promise of a redeemer. That it would point to Jesus, that God took the initiative and said, I would deliver you. We also see this in this amazing picture. You remember the story. Adam and Eve, they're sinning. Uh, They recognize that they were sinful. They were naked before God, and they realized what that meant uh, because they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says they heard the sound of the Lord God coming in the garden. And instead of running toward them, you remember what they did. They ran and hid. Do Do you remember what happened next? God said, where are you? He went looking for Adam. Even though he knew where he was, he, he initiated that contact. I see the same thing in Samuel. If you remember, 1 Samuel begins with Eli's sons. Eli was the priest. And his sons were unfaithful. And they violated the altar. And because of that, God judged his sons. And he killed the men in his family. And it would be tempting to think that God said, that's it. I'm not going to allow anything else to have anything to do with altars again. Because as we see the rest of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, very little is said of priests. And very little is said of altars. Until this passage. Because God hearing and knowing that his people would be far from him, desired to build a house for himself. And he starts where the people ended. He starts with building an altar. And it would be at that place where he would initiate his communication, his communion with the people of God. That God loves and uh, desires to be the God who builds a house for himself. Verses 18 and 19 tells us that uh, God initiates the process. Listen again to verse 18 in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, so David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. Now, it's very clear in the, first, in the passage in First Chronicles, the parallel passage, that God is the one who's making these things happen. I've included that text in your uh, outline. I encourage you, if you haven't read it yet, to read it this afternoon, because you're going to see God's hand in everything that happens in this text. Let me read from 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 18, and listen to how this describes God's involvement. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. 
Ornan and Arauna are the same people. In 2 Samuel, Arauna is a title. Uh, most of us, most scholars think that it's uh, the word for Lord or King. And Ornan is his personal name. So Ornan uh, owned this field that the angel of the Lord said to Gad, go and tell David to buy it. Now, this is the same angel that the Lord told to destroy uh, Jerusalem, to destroy Israel. And as he was raising his sword to harm Jerusalem, the Lord said, that's enough, that's enough. Stop destroying, and now get this, start building. Stop destroying and start redeeming. God is the one who initiated the process to build an altar for himself. Not only did he move Gad, the prophet, to speak to David, uh, to talk to Ornan, he also works through Ornan because First uh, Chronicles 21 tells us that Ornan and his sons saw the angel of the Lord and they responded. And I think that's one of the reasons that Ornan said, take it for free. You're going to have to take everything that you want. Take it. It's yours. Because he wanted to be in a place where God's altar would be um, built. One of the things that we learn uh, is that this altar was a place where the temple would be built. In First Chronicles chapter 3, when you uh, read about Samuel, Sam, uh, Solomon building the temple, it is at the place of the field where David bought the uh, threshing floor. It was a place of the altar that God built his house from this position. I, uh, after David prayed to the Lord, after he called to the Lord in, in, a, in, a, in a plea to forgive my sin and the sin of the people, I want you to listen to how God delighted in giving uh, his answer. Uh, listen to Second Samuel uh, 24, 17 again. It says, And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Hearing God's, uh, David's confession, God initiated uh, the process of forgiving, uh, forgiveness by uh, calling him to build an altar. There's always a price uh, for forgiveness. God always initiates. Not only did he initi initiate in Genesis chapter 3, but Paul tells us that he initiated even in our behalf, because in Romans 5, 8, the Bible says that God proved his love toward us even though we, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were separated from God, he initiated his grace. Not only is there a movement from God to build this altar, there's an investment. 
verses 20 through 24. I've read it, so I'll refer to it. David says, I want to buy your field. And Arana says, you can have the oxen, you can have the wood, you can have everything. And David makes this statement. He says this, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. I won't do that. And I think the reason he did that is because, as I said earlier, David understood that sacrifice, offering sacrifices, comes with a cost. I think he learned this when he sinned before the Lord, and the Lord said, because of your sin, you're going to have to be disciplined. And he learned that when he was going to make a sacrifice, the animal would die for the uh, relief of guilt. The animal would give their life. He knew that sacrifice cost. Sacrifice still costs. The Bible teaches us that our sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf came at a cost. I like to say that faith is free, and it is. Uh, God never charged me to have faith. It's a gift of God. Grace is free, and it is. Oh, but that comes at the cost of Christ's death. I think that Isaiah wrote it beautifully when he said in Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that was upon him brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Sacrifice always comes at a cost. Verse 25 reminds us that God was on the scene. Look at verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was lifted from Israel. When this offering was offered to the Lord, God did something in that instance that he hadn't done since the beginning of 1 Samuel. If you read 1 Samuel in the beginning, God would allow offerings to be offered on the altar, and he would respond by fire. The last time we hear those words written were in 1 Samuel chapter 3. The next time we hear it um, written is in 2 Samuel chapter 24. That God, what he stopped in 1 Samuel, he began here. And I love the, the language that uh, 2 Chronicles, uh, 1 Chronicles writes about this event. Listen, listen to this. This is from 1 Chronicles 21. This is a beautiful um, scene. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him. 
with fire from heaven, not done since the beginning of 1 Samuel, upon the altar of the burnt offering. Listen to this. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put its sword back in its sheath. Boy, what a picture of deliverance. The God said, that's enough. That's enough. There were two offerings offered on the altar. The first one is called a burnt offering. The burnt offering was exactly that. It was an offering that was offered to God and burned up. As a young bachelor, I used to have a lot of burnt offerings in my cooking. But the burnt offering that I used to produce didn't smell good. There was a charcoal uh, acidic smell. It was a terrible smell. This offering, the Lord says, when it, when it burnt up, it produced a sweet-smelling savor into God's nostrils. Now, I don't know what kind of people you are, but if you like barbecue, if, you, if you're driving by a place where they're cooking some meat, it's been seasoned, and that smell of the barbecue just wafts in your nose. If you're driving, your car may go on autopilot and just kind of ease into that. Barbecue is good, but that doesn't do that much to me. But cookies and baked goods, oh man! If I, if I buy a bakery, if I smell all oh, delicious baked goods, uh, one of the things that uh, is a... Uh, a trial for me. It's this evil place that they call uh, Krispy Kreme. <laughs> that, uh, that place should never have been, uh, if you work there, I'm sorry, but that place should have never been in existence. That is such a draw for some of us, a sweet-smelling offering, a note, something that's beautiful and pleasing to the nose. Don't miss this. What God's teaching us through this sacrifice is that God delights in this sacrifice. It gives him pleasure. The burnt offering was supposed to do two things. It would uh, expiate our sin. It would separate our sin as far as the east is from the west. So far has God removed our sin. That's Psalm 103. That it's, it's God removing our sin from us. The second one, he takes away the weight of our sin, the guilt of our sin, the shame of our sin. We're heavy burdened by our sin, but the, um, the forgiveness of God sets us free. Oh, way before I got married, way before I got married, there was a lady who wanted to date me. I'll give her the name. Uh, <laughs> I almost said the name again. In the first service, I said the name. Um, I'll give her the name. Dawn, that's the name. I'm changing the name to um, protect the scared. <laughs> um, Dawn. And Dawn wanted to... Uh, date me, and, and I, I wasn't having anything. I just didn't want to date anyone at that point. I had to go to the Schenectady County Jail to visit someone. 
this story is going somewhere, so hang with me. As I went into the jail, uh, as you go in, there are two doors. One, you walk through and they lock it behind you. And they won't open the other one until the first door is locked. And so when that was locked, they opened the other one, and I walked in, and I did my pastoral visit, and uh, I was walking out again. So the first set of doors opened and closed, and I was ready to walk out in the second set, and I looked at the guard who was there, and it was Dawn. And she looked at me, and I'm telling you the truth. She said, give me your phone number, and I'll open the door. Said something like one, two, three, four, five, six. I don't know what I said, but the number I gave her was a lie. I'm ashamed to say I lied. I blurted out this number. And when I gave her the number, she wrote it down and she opened the door. That feeling of going out of that jail, I was free again. I had skipped and sang. It was wonderful because I was released. That's the picture that this sacrifice evokes. The freedom from our sins. We're free. We're released. That's the burnt offering. But there's something else about the burnt offering. This is so cool. The aroma that smells so good. God takes pleasure in forgiving us. He takes pleasure in granting forgiveness. He delights in that. Have you ever been in the supermarket and you saw somebody, possibly from First Press or other places, and you said, oh, I hope they don't see me. I hope they don't see me. Oh, and I'm looking this way. I'm going to pretend I don't see them. If that ever happened to you, that's not what God does. He wants us to see him. He wants us to bring our sin to him. And he wants to forgive. That's what he started with David on that field. The second offering was the peace offering. The peace offering was one of three thank offerings. And this one was also burnt before the Lord, but this had a particular purpose. It wasn't to to forgive us of our sin and guilt. It was a fellowship, a thanks offering. It was an offering that allowed us to enjoy not only our community with each other, but our communion with God. That God was the one who enjoys to be. He wants to be in our presence. And we want to be with him. I said earlier that the altar was used very infrequently in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel. It's seen at the beginning of 1 Samuel where the priests treated things inappropriately. It's seen when Saul built an off-off altar after he made a, a foolish vow. Uh, one of the things that happened when Saul built that off altar, he asked God for help, and God didn't respond. He didn't talk back to him. There was no fire from heaven. You don't read any of that until God built the altar, until he initiated the process. 
And it's as, it is as if God is saying, I want you to come to me. I want to forgive your sins. I want to redeem you. I want to build a house. The house that God built was a temple we call the Solomon's Temple. Do you know that God still is still building a house? The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are, we, we learn that we are living stones that God is building into a house. He's building a house for himself. He still delights in that. Emmanuel means God with us. And as I read this text, I couldn't help but think that God was with uh, Adam and Eve in the beginning, and he was with David because it was so clear that God was initiating this process. And if I'm not careful, I, I would rename God's name, God with us, to God with them back there. But I remind you that God is still with us. He's still the one who calls us to himself. He's still the one who delights in offering forgiveness. He's still the one who made the better priests and the better prophet. Started with Eli's sons. They were unfaithful. But the writer to the book of Hebrews tells us that there is another priest that is far greater. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 and 25, the priest that uh, he's talking about is the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, uh, listen to this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Two things, saving to the uttermost. I do not swim, I sink. And I know people tell you, your bodies float. And um, when you have cushion, like I have cushion, it's supposed to make you float. I don't float. I go straight down. And whenever I'm in trouble in the water, uh, this is how I know I'm being saved. Someone stands at the edge of the water. If they say something like this, go over there, that's not saving me. But if they jump in, if they drag me to the end, if they pull me up out of the water, if they hug me and say, dear, big, scary guy, you're safe now. Stop crying. You're okay. That's saving to the uttermost. Christ saves us to the uttermost. Our sins are not almost forgiven. They are completely forgiven. Our relationship with God is not almost restored. In Christ, 
we are completely restored, saved to the uttermost. And the second part of that is he prays for you. Now, you have pastors praying for you all the time. You have women shepherds praying for you all the time. You have other elders praying for you. you. Your friends, your loved ones, your brothers and sisters, they pray for you. But their prayers are nothing like Jesus' prayers. I admire Mike Phillips, and I love working with him. And I love when he prays for me. But if I had to choose between Mike's prayers and Jesus' prayers. I'm going for Jesus every time. Okay, good. (laughs) You agree. Do you know that Jesus not only died for you, but he prays for you. He makes intercession for you. He is a magnificent priest. And I'll close with this. He's also a better prophet. Gad was a prophet. Nathan was a prophet. Samuel was a prophet. They were faithful prophets before the Lord, but uh, Jesus is the better prophet. Um, Hebrews is an amazing book because it tells us about um, the supremacy of Jesus. Listen to what the writer to Hebrews has said. Oh, this is great. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus Christ is the better prophet. He is the word of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who speaks truthfully God's word. He is the one who has never sinned. He was never unfaithful to God's covenant. He was the one who calls us to himself. He's a faithful, faithful prophet of God. And because he is the better prophet, he is the better priest, I didn't even talk about his being the better king, we are moved to join Peter in this proclamation of faith when we say praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen. God is so amazing. Not only has he initiated forgiveness and restoration and communion with himself, he shields us and he keeps us. That's the Christ we serve. If you're here listening or listening online and you're thinking, I'm not a believer, I don't, I've never trusted Christ, but 
boy, what, what I hear about him, I, I want to, I want to. I, I, I'm, I'll share with you, that's God drawing you to yourself. He's drawing you to him. Uh, he's given you that desire to trust him. And you trust him by acknowledging that he died for your sins. You trust him by acknowledging that his death was enough. And that you can thank him for uh, dying for you and for forgiving your sins. And here's the thing I love when I think about God's initiation. Uh, your confidence is not found in the, how perfect your prayer of confession is is found in how perfect and powerful the God who draws you is. We serve an amazing God because he recognized our failure and how far away from us we've been, and he didn't leave us there. He took the first step of drawing us to himself. And once we're his, he keeps us, and he shields us, and he preserves us until he comes. <laughs> so that we could say, like Peter, I love this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And with Peter, I say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Shall we pray? Yes. Almighty God and loving Father, thank you for providing a way that provides forgiveness and restoration. We are thankful that Christ became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for our uh, corporate identity. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are your sons and daughters. We love you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.